the nonprofit MBA purpose is to provide new business insights and fresh creative ideas for executive directors and their teams that will help them improve their organization. Here is your host, Stephen Holastic. Welcome, everyone. My name is Stephen Holastic, and I'm co-founder and managing partner of Financing Solutions. Financing Solutions is the leading provider of lines of credits to nonprofits in the United States, uh, small nonprofits, under $5 million in size is typically our client. Our line of credit program is easy, inexpensive, and costs nothing until used, making it a great cash backup plan for your nonprofit. I can't tell you how many times I get clients saying, Thank God I got this line of credit in place. Uh, and uh, if you'd like to learn more to uh, about the line of credit uh, program, please visit us at nonprofitmbapodcast.com. And if you decide to apply today, we will even give you a $250 credit on file. Or feel free to give us a call at 862-207-4118. Just remember the time to set up your line of credit is today, not when the emergency actually comes up. And I just want to let the audience know that I think 75% of the time people are using their line of credit for payroll uh, because you can't miss payroll. It's illegal. And boy, does it cause a lot of problems in your office as well. So uh, just a little heads up. And uh, so it is a very popular product. Uh, Today, I am very excited to be speaking with Barbara O'Reilly from Windmill Hills Consulting. Barbara brings to her clients nearly 30 years of annual fund, major gifts, and campaign funding experience at major nonprofit organizations, including Harvard, the National Trust uh, for Historic Preservation, Oxford University, and the American Red Cross. Her firm, Windmill Hill Consulting, helps nonprofit organizations of all sizes, cut through the noise and develop a profitable fundraising strategy that focuses on the resources, skills, and tactics they need to build more effective donor relationships and catapult their revenue. Barbara, welcome to today's Nonprofit MBA podcast. Thank you, Stephen. I'm delighted to be here. I'm glad to have you. You have a lot of experience. It's, it's, it's both with larger organizations and smaller organizations. Uh, today's topic, you know, I just think it's going to be a very interesting one. Not, and it, today's topic is nonprofit fundraising pre-COVID, during COVID, and after COVID. And as you and I joked before we went live, uh, we're still not in the after COVID fa- phase, but I think we're starting to see the writing on the wall. Not just that COVID's going to be uh, behind us, but that. Um, that that I think some people are starting to change their attitude about. Uh, well, what they're not change right to, they're starting to move to the idea of what they're going to, what fundraising is going to look like for them mm-hmm. and going forward. And I think that's an exciting time, don't you? I do. I do. And, you know, I can feel um, in talking to lots of nonprofit leaders, I can feel there's a, a cautious optimism, a cautious sort of collective sigh of relief that we might be out of the darkest point of this tunnel um, and that that light is getting a little bit brighter each and every day. Um, and, and let's hope, you know, I mean, I think we've been doing this now for two, two years almost. Um, and the nonprofit sector has really been able to uh, adapt and, and be nimble enough to sort of weather lots of different shifting sands that we've been standing on. So I think that we are we are at a point where we are, we've seen what has worked, what hasn't worked, and we can start to um, adapt in a way with with a little bit more confidence than we did certainly, you know, in the very early days of the pandemic. Yeah, you know, um, we had we've been doing a survey for a while now, and uh, amongst our clients, and we what we've seen is over the last two years that two out of every three small nonprofits did better during the COVID years than they did before. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we, we, I had actually read that somewhere that they, that's what they thought was happening. And I said, you know, let's put some real numbers behind mm-hmm. it. Um, but it, it takes in life and in business, it takes uh, sometimes very challenging circumstances mm-hmm. to make you better, doesn't mm-hmm. it? It does. It does. And, and, you know, often 
disasters or emergencies will expose where the existing cracks are in a sector and an organization. And I, that was very much the case in the in the early days of the pandemic. We saw, you know, and, and you know from from financing that you know it used to be the gold standard was having six months of reserves. And in the early twenty, you know, early days of twenty twenty, suddenly that was no longer going to be the 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 uh, what was necessary. They were going to need far more as we were sort of facing these uncertainty uh, financially for those for the nonprofits. And so, what's really interesting is. Um, that we've seen where there, where we need to plan differently. So, you know, I, I am in the sort of 2020, 2021, I was doing um, presentations around what we've learned to date. And, and I was talking about this in the in the context of not what if we had known, but what, what would we have done if we had planned differently, right? So in 2019, if we had put our set in place different financial resources, different infrastructure, different capacities, tech and staffing and otherwise, that that would have set up many nonprofits very differently on a very different trajectory. And so thinking about, you know, not sort of reflecting and saying, oh gosh, if only we had done, because that's that's useless. So setting ourselves up now to think about how do we prepare ourselves for the future? So for example, I talked to some several nonprofit leaders who said, um, you know, it was fortuitous that we started putting in place, we overhauled our tech, we made sure that we had, you know, complete seamless integration internally amongst our staff, so that they could be more flexible where they were working pre pandemic. And gosh, didn't that help, you know, come into play when everything went remote, when many nonprofits were seeing a surge in contributions that they might not have been able to really adequately steward and process in a timely and efficient way. Um, had they not had those systems in place. And so I think, you know, um, really always using this as a reflection point to say, where do we need to go? And what are those systems that we need to have in place now to be able to weather, God forbid, another emergency like this, but certainly how do we continue to um, forecast a little bit of future you know, capacities and infrastructure and support that we're going to need um, so that we can move forward in, in a more effective way. And I think those organizations that definitely um, adapted and had those systems in place, we're able to go keep going um, versus the ones that sort of froze. You don't think, though, that the, you don't think that the smaller organizations, smaller nonprofits had a I wouldn't exactly say a contingency plan in place, but like my, my original question, which you kind of answered, I think was, okay, let's take a scenario where all the nonprofits know mm -hmm. that for the next two to three years, um, this thing called COVID is going to hit. Mm -hmm. Their staff's going to have to work remotely. Mm -hmm. Their fundraising is going to change. What would have they? What would they done if they had known in advance? Mm -hmm. Versus, you know, piecemeal. Uh, uh, there's this disease that came, and then over a period of time, they've had to change their operation. I wonder what nonprofits would have done if if they had a crystal ball. Yeah, that's a. I mean, gosh, that's the million dollar question, right? Um, I well, one of the things I can say is that um, the organizations that had in place and all of all sizes, right, but especially the smaller to mid-sized ones, um, they the, those that had sort of a plan in place, they, you know, at not necessarily the most robust and complicated, but they had a sense of how much they needed to raise, how they were going to raise that money, and where, where were the areas that they were going to um, sort of, you know, sort of define as their fundraising strategy. So online, offline, in person, you know, virtual and so forth. Um, the, those organizations that had some sort of development plan in place actually weathered the early sort of disruption to the sector much more much more effectively than those that didn't. This came from a study that um, Windmill Hill and a couple other companies uh, sponsored uh, in 2020, actually. We, we launched the survey right as the pandemic was happening. 
Uh, we did this in con conjunction with a colleague of ours, Dr. Adrian Sargent, uh, for the Institute for Sustainable Philanthropy in the UK. And we looked at what, you know, the, the, the original premise was just do fundraising plans, have a correlation to fundraising success. And what we did was we brought in some questions that were specific to COVID because we were curious to how is this now going to affect those organ that, that development planning? You know, do, does everyone say, oh, you know, the world's in chaos, we're going to toss our development plans out the window. And then actually, in fact, it gave those organizations that had one a, a steadier guide to be able to move forward. They had that, they didn't feel like they had to recreate the wheel, they just had to adjust and make some tweaks. And I think, and again, these don't have to be complicated plans, but those, but that sense of, um, you know, intentionally saying we're going to raise this much from this revenue source, this much from this, and these are the ways we're going to do it, helped those organizations when the world was spinning out of control to say, we're going to keep our nose to this plan and adjust it as we can based on the circumstances, but we're going to keep going. And I definitely saw that earlier in the pandemic when it felt like the sector had split. There were those that kept fundraising and those that just froze. That's not a criticism at all. It was, they were trying to make sense of it. They maybe were trying to wait it out a bit. They weren't entirely sure what their next step should be for lots of reasons. And the ones that kept fundraising, probably many of those had already a plan in place. They were the ones they were able to weather it um, much more easily. And, you know, I think that's, that's probably one of the factors. I think the other, the other factor that I saw quite clearly was that the nonprofit sector as a whole, um, I think they, in, in a way, doubted philanthropy. They doubted donors because they felt like everyone is now, you know, sort of try in this new, in this pandemic, and they're trying to figure things out, and our donors aren't necessarily, they're going to be distracted. But the reality was, if anything, and we see this in the Giving USA report, we see this in the fundraising effectiveness projects uh, quarterly reports that if anything it was quite the opposite so donors kept stepping up and it became no longer an either or it became a both and for them so it was i'm going to continue to support the organizations that are super important to me and that i, I have supported pre-pandemic and i'm going to support these other things so it was for the global health, right? It was for the pandemic, COVID, immediate COVID response. It was for the social services within their communities, food banks, and so forth. It then became social justice um, initiatives as um, as the murder of George Floyd happened in June of that year. So it became these sort of both, and it actually, remember 2020 was also a very contentious political time. So it became also political donors. Um, you know, donors are making often first-time gifts to political causes. So it became this both and, and we saw that the, the contributions were um, at a record high of, I think about 470 billion, majority of which came from individuals. We saw that in 2021 as well, those numbers are not out yet. They'll come out in June of this year for the Giving USA report, but we see that the number of donors is still continuing to be up in 2021. Um, it was probably at uh, on the same pace as 2020. We did see some donor retentions numbers going down, uh, but on all all early reports are showing that donors were continuing to step up. And so I think, I hope if anything, that will show our nonprofit leaders that donors do continue to give and will will make the decisions as best fits their own circumstances, but they will do what they can to support the organizations that they really uh, are important to them and also that are helping the communities in our world. So I think if anything we take away from this is that we've got to continue to trust our donors. We have to believe that they will support us and, um, you know, and, and, and also then how do we keep them? How do we move, you know, retain them? And that's the other bigger issue that um, we, we, we haven't been able to solve yet in the sector, but certainly with these new influxes of, of donors, hopefully now nonprofits can take a breath and say, all right, we've had these ends, this surge in 2020 or 2021 of new donors, We've got to do the best we can to hold on to them because they're showing us attention. They're showing us that they believe in our mission in, for some reason. And let's let's see if we can keep keep them around and investing in our organization. All right. So so let's get to the heart and soul of the the topic today. So this is a you know kind of a three part question, and that is, what was 
fundraising like prior to COVID, now that we can kind of look back, what was a fundraising like during COVID and what was fundraising going to be like going forward? I think, I think some of the answers in my mind is kind of obvious, mm -hmm. but let's, let's kind of go through that. It's nice to be able to look behind and say, oh, well, this is what it used to be like, right? And, um, you know, that's probably the easiest part of that question, right? Um, so let's, let's hear from, from you about those three kind of key areas. So I, I affectionately call it uh, BC, fundraising BC, which is before COVID. <laughs> and yeah, yeah, yeah. Hopefully AC after COVID. Um, <laughs> so I would say fundraising BC was, uh, you know, a combination of um, a lot of digital fundraising strategies, a lot, um, you know, and depending on the depending on the size of the organization and what their budgets were and where they were in terms of their fundraising sort of maturity, but there was a combination of a lot of digital. Um, some were moving towards multi-channel where they were bringing in some print pieces and offline communications to balance the digital. There were a lot of events as we know. Uh, and I would say that probably uh, there were probably more nonprofits that were more heavily event fundraising based than they should have been. And so they were the ones that probably that struggled early, early on in the pandemic when everything did, when, when all events and all in-person activities had stopped and could no, could not happen. So I would say that there was um, maybe less of a balanced, and again, I don't want to make gross generalizations, but there were, there was definitely a tendency for um, one channel movement towards multi-channel for some um, and maybe less of an appreciation of the um, how to build those donor relationships in a way that was going to be um, supporting, a, you know, a, a sustaining fundraising plan over time. And again, there were some that were already knocking it out of the park and were superstars in their fundraising with year over year growth. But I would say on average that, you know, there was sort of this this um, tension between uh, channels and and how to tie those then to sustainable results. During COVID, um, as I mentioned, there was sort of that split in the early months where some nonprofits froze, they stopped everything, they were trying to kind of get their feet back on the ground. Um, they stopped fundraising because they thought it wasn't the right time. They wanted to give their donors space. And but those that kept going, um, you know, they who kept with their print pieces, who kept a, an open line of communication with their audience in some way, uh, they were the ones that were able to continue with uh, with their with building their fundraising and keeping those donor relationships. Um, I would say also, though, those that donors that had already I'm mean, sorry, those nonprofits that had already had a, a um, sort of a plan in place, as I, you know, as I mentioned, they were the ones that could keep going a little bit more. Um, and it, they might have to, you know, because they had a very clear role for where their fund, you know, where their donors um, could make the biggest impact, how, um, where, how they were going to ask their, their supporters for continued support and so forth. So I think there's, there were, though there was that clear divide, but then the, the organizations that were more, um, heavily reliant on, so the ones that either froze or more, more heavily reliant on events or larger group gatherings like walks or, um, you know, anything, athons, um, galas, golf tournaments, and so forth, they had to really kind of scramble quickly to readjust themselves, to figure out how how do we continue to raise money for this organization when the way, main ways that we were we were doing this can no longer happen? Um, and you know I think that's where there was that evolution over through 2020 and into 2021 of figuring out how do we make virtual or hybrid events work? Certainly virtual for 2020 and part of 2021. How do we make those work or as effective? Um, and how do we go back to the fundamentals of, you know, of, of direct mail or e-appeals or picking up the phone and talking to our donors or tapping into our boards in different ways. So I think as we've emerged out of the 2020 and 2021 timeframe of the, of the pandemic, I'm seeing organizations 
uh, sort of adapt in a way that they are, you know, that they they are. This is part of how they're doing their business now. So they are building in hybrid. Um, they are understanding that those they they can't just do. They can't build these relationships transactionally. They can't just assume that donors are going to keep giving um, without all the other pieces of stewardship, of updates, of um, you know, of impact. All of those things that we know are the main drivers for why donors give. So I think that there's, um, I think that that's, I think that's where we're going to see more nonprofits, to, you know, moving into as we get into the fundraising AC after COVID, um, is to understand that what worked most, especially, were trusting in our donors, staying closely connected with them in whatever channel, um, but actually really more multi-channel. So not just relying completely on emails or or social um, or, or websites. It was multi-channel. And so we, we meet our donors where they are. And um, mm. and that's where I think we're, that's where I think some of the biggest lessons have been learned. And we realize it's, you know, that's, it's, it's going to be the new way forward is, uh, and that's, that's what served us during these times of crisis. And it will be, it will continue to serve us, I think, in the, as we move forward and out of this. I feel sorry for donors. I got to think of them myself too, because you know, like, I, you know, I get, you know, everyone's heard it, you know, I just, like I get pounded by uh, direct mail and I'm like, really, you know, come on, mm-hmm. you know, and then I, I kind of have to call them and say, please stop sending me direct mail and, and, uh, and so it's, you know, I think it, I, I haven't really put a lot of thought into, but it all, it all comes down to personal relationships. I, I, you know, it's easier said that for a smaller nonprofit to say that than it is a large nonprofit, but, you know, and I know there's an escalation process of, you know, um, you know, like I, I give a lot of money to my university mm-hmm. and boy, are they just terrible at, personal relationships just terrible and they can't because they have 500,000 alumni you know they just can't do it but they're so bad at it and literally you know now that I've been doing so much more like this is my fourth year for the nonprofit MBA podcast you know I look at them and I say you know what I'm just not going to give you as much money anymore Mm -hmm. because you just don't make me feel that I really that I really matter right right there that's what you've said it right there do i matter right and that's so when donors are making their decisions about giving there are two questions that they're asking is is you know how does this align with my own personal value so what what is this this is going to it's going to resonate with me or not and often you know we are we're bringing into our giving decisions that lens of you know um that causes that are important to us, that are important to our families. There are things that maybe there were things that happened in our lives that we want to pay forward now, right? So there are all those nuances and factors. But then it's also, do, do I matter to this organization? And that's where stewardship comes into play. And I totally agree with you. I think the universities, colleges and universities um, are, uh, and having worked at, that having gotten my career started in universities, I will say nowadays they don't do a good job at all. And, and it's just because of the volume. And so it's that sense of, do I matter to, in, to this organization? And that's, I think, when, when stewardship fails, when it, when, the, when it feels like a transaction, right? And not, I'm making a difference. I'm giving this gift of whatever size. And I, gosh, I feel like they value me. I feel like they, this gift is really gonna make a difference again. That $25 gift is as important as that $25 million gift. Uh, so I think that's where, that's the beauty of stewardship. It's by creating that sense of um, hospitality, of welcome, of community for all donors. And if, um, if I don't feel like what you were just saying, if, if you don't feel valued, you don't feel like this is making a difference, that has a huge impact on, you know, on your interest to stay. And that's where I, that's one of the reasons why I feel like nonprofit, the nonprofit sector has such terrible donor retention rates. I mean, we're talking 
on average, more than 60% of donors don't make a second gift or don't make, they don't come back, right? It's whether they've made a first or actually making a second gift, 80% of them don't come back to make a second gift on average. That comes down to, do those donors feel valued? Do they feel seen? Do they feel appreciated? Do they feel like that gift helped move the needle in some way? And I think that's, I'm hoping one of the takeaways as we emerge out of this um, pandemic is that nonprofits will see that they've got to keep connecting the dots for those donors, but especially those new donors. They've got to keep them close, not just let's put them on our mailing list and we'll mail out emails. You know, we'll do a newsletter and that should that should suffice. It's, you know, can we can we look strategically at our donors to say, this group are our first time donors. Let's make sure we welcome them in with a special note or a board call or uh, a welcome packet or some, quote, you know, a check-in report. Again, not for their $25, $50 gift, but collectively, where, where have we been moving? Where have we been making a difference? That right there, those couple little touch points um, are would, would make a, such a world of difference. And yeah, and I think that's we. And this is again not partly. It's it's a reflection on the sector's inability to invest in the capacities that are necessary to do fundraising well. So there's that there's that sort of bigger meta issue. But then I think the other is um, related to that is that we have you know overstretched staff at smaller to mid-sized organizations who can't, and certainly large ones who can't who don't have the bandwidth to do this to do this. So it's all about how much money are we raising and the stewardship piece is, you know, gets the short shrift or is overlooked completely. And I think I'm hoping, you know, that with this influx of new donors that many nonprofits saw in 2020 and 2021, that they are able to take, you know, to take the plan, take the time necessary to plan meaningful stewardship touch points that will show those donors that they are seen, that they are valued. Um, and, you know, I think that it, the, just that right there will help them in the long run because the more donors they can retain, ultimately, the more money they can raise because those donors are sticking around. They're getting more invested. They might be more inclined to make to upgrade their gift, whether they're asked or not. So, um, you know, and, you know, we none of us want to feel like we're just transactional entities. We're walking ATMs. So I which. Um, which sometimes can be the case with for some of the larger shops. It, you know, again, and that's a, a slight criticism, but it's it is uh, it's just the nature of it. So I'm hoping that that's one of the biggest takeaways that we can we can you know adapt into our our fundraising for the sector is strong stewardship to make every donor feel valued and welcome so that more of them will stick around and want to continue to invest. If, if you had to guess, say out of every 10 nonprofits, how many of them will not, will, when, when they have the chance, they'll go away from uh, virtual fundraising? Well, that's a great question. I would say Right now, I'm starting to see the pendulum move back to doing more, to going back to doing in-person events only. But I think that's because everybody has just been so eager to get back to doing things we used to do and being around other people. There's a, we saw this especially uh, that there, you know, this doing virtual events or doing some sort of virtual cultivation or updates or even major gift officers doing virtual one-on-one -on -one meetings with potential donors those were as effective in fact they were probably more more effective than you know anything than what we would have done pre-covid so i think we'll see the pendulum swing back to kind of a doing the way doing events especially the way we used to do them but We'll also realize that we're going to leave donors out of the equation if we don't figure out a hybrid or we don't do uh, some virtual with in person. Because, right, frankly, a lot of donors um, and potential donors enjoyed the convenience of not having to travel to go to an event or, you know, and you say so you have to factor in, okay, how much time out of my schedule do I need to block for the event? How much for the 
for the, you know, the travel to and from, do I have parking to pay for? Do I have this, right? And the traffic and all the other factors that go into commuting and, and getting to a place, you know, for an event. So they actually enjoyed and more of them showed up for virtual events because they were super easy. They could sit anywhere they wanted and be anywhere they wanted and they could do, they could do those virtual events. So I think that we will, we'll see this, the, the pendulum swing to kind of let's get back to the way we used to do things. And then hopefully we'll get back into a middle ground, um, remembering that we are, we're able to still, you know, be as effective with, through that virtual setting. Um, and I don't, I'm still, I'm not sure about the hybrid model yet because um, it's, it's expensive for organizations to put on those in-person events and then have some sort of video feed that's giving that hybrid component. So I don't know, I don't know where we're going to go with where we'll see the sector land on that, but for sure, um, if it, it, what, another lesson will be that virtual in some way, shape or form, whether it was one-on-one -on -one meetings or small group gatherings or events um, did work for, for the most part, they worked. So let's figure out if we can balance our, our gatherings and our, our activities in a way that will still combine in-person with those virtual. You know, I had a guest on, um, he was from, he's from England and uh, his, his organization, uh, uh, you know, it was kind of a, a, a fundraising consultancy. <clears throat> and he said prior to two, two years before COVID hit, um, they had uh, a practice inside of their organization that did virtual fundraising. Mm -hmm. And it was 10% ten, ten of his business. Mm -hmm. And then COVID hit, mm -hmm. and now it's 90% of yeah. his business. Right. So, I mean, that's not so like, aha, it's not an aha statistic. Right. But um, so what, what I'm thinking now is, all right, well, we know virtual fundraising is here. Mm -hmm. We know it's going to not go away. Mm -hmm. So what's the what's the next thing in five years? Right. In five years that we're going to see. And I I would think more VR headsets where people are actually, you know, at the event, but virtually, but through the headsets, mm -hmm. you know, my, 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 I have a 21 year old and a 13 year old boy and, um, they boys and they, um, uh, about two or three years ago, my 20, you know, it was longer than that, about three years ago, my 21, 21 year old got a VR headset. Mm -hmm. Right. And he was like, it's great, but there's really no, there's not a lot of games on. There's not a lot of applications. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, then my son, my 13-year-old son got a VR headset this year and he's on it all the time. Oh, wow. And he loves it. And and so, you know, with uh, some of you may not or may not know that, you know, Facebook re is rebranded re itself to Meta yep. and they own the largest uh, VR headset, virtual reality headset. And, you know, the whole idea is that when you have a meeting now, you're going to pick your own, um, uh, not emoji, but your own icon uh -huh. that represents you. You'll be in a board meeting and you'll be able to interact with people on the VR headset. Wow. Um, you know, so I, you know, and I'm starting to see it from the kids, which is always where the future comes from. Right. Yeah. But what do you think? What do you think in five years from now, if you had to talk about what the, the, the fundraising landscape is going to look like? What do you, what do you say? Well, if you had asked me in 2016 what I thought the fundraising landscape would look like, I would not have said a pandemic and a complete shutdown yeah. of the sector. So you, so you didn't think it was going to go virtual? No, I mean, I um, no, I mean, it, the only things I would I saw virtual were webinars and other trainings. I did not. I didn't see nonprofits really using virtual uh, in, yeah. in a meaningful way. Uh, and so, you know, it's interesting because I, uh, I started using Zoom to do virtual meetings with clients all over the country in 2016. And, you know, I remember kind of explaining to clients, okay, there's this link <laughs> you can click on. You don't need to create an account. You don't need to sign up for it. You just click on this link. And here we are in 2020. And suddenly everybody was on Zoom. So um, I, I think 
I think it's interesting your point about VR headsets because I remember seeing an article and I think it was probably about three, three years ago or so, um, Charity Water had done uh, this gala. They had their annual gala in New York and they gave every, they put at every seat VR headsets. And at some point during the gala, they had everybody put the headsets on and they had some VR video uh, showing, you know, showing their work in, in practice, right, in, in action. And everybody was there and it moved everyone to the point because they could physically, they could feel like they were walking with this young girl, you know, who was walking miles to go get clean water and then walk back to her village miles back and took hours and hours for one bucket of water or something. And they were there walking with her and they were experiencing yeah. as if they were there literally in person. It was the it was like their biggest fundraiser. They and then they had a donor actually who came the next day and had made an additional thirty to fifty thousand dollar gift because he was so moved. So I do think um, now that's that's a unique example because back even three years ago VR headsets were still pretty expensive. So I think as they become more accessible and more reasonable, <clears throat> excuse me, financially, you know, cost wise, I maybe nonprofits will move in that direction. I, I do think virtual in some way, shape, or form will become more commonplace for nonprofits. I do think that they will um, use it as an opportunity to, you know, stay connected with donors, you know, a wider audience of donors. So, you know, I was talking to nonprofits in 2020 and early 2021, and they were saying, you know, we, we couldn't do our gala like we normally would but we, we did this virtual version of it instead. And, you know, we were able to get donors who would never have come already because they wouldn't have, you know, the out of town donors because they were able now to come. So I do, I think that that's, I do think we'll just see more video and more virtual. Um, I think we'll see video really being used more as a stewardship piece. So in emails and in other donor communications, I think we'll see more of that. Um, so I think because that worked really well for those organizations that did some sort of video, you know, sort of report during during the early days of COVID. Um, I, I, I think I'm not sure where else we're going to see what else we're going to see. Maybe the, 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 the ways donors are giving will change. Actually, I'm mm -hmm. sure the ways donors will give will change. I think we're going to see um, and I know you interviewed Pat uh, Duffy from Giving Block. I think we're going to see crypto start crypto do donations starting to become a gain that traction that donor advised funds gained starting 15 years ago or so when everybody was like, what is this thing called donor advised funds? And we've got to figure out, you know, how donors are using this. It's, you know, I think that's that's one area. Crypto is in that space right now. So I think we're going to see more of that. Um, I think we're going to see, you know, more peer-to-peer uh, -peer through Facebook fundraisers, right? We definitely, over the last two years, Facebook fundraising crossed the five billion mark. It's probably even as, up, as high as six billion now. So that people were giving in that way um, to, uh, because that was, you know, a way that they felt like they could, they were on that platform and they felt like they could make a difference, you know, for nonprofits. So there's, so I think there's that. I think, um I think we will see the way nonprofits can communicate with their donors also changing. So there's a slow increase in nonprofits communicating by text messaging and in, you know, making sure everything's mobile friendly. Uh, I'd like, I mean, I'd like more nonprofits and their websites and donation pages and emails to be mobile friendly. But we saw, um, I think the stats, something like mobile audiences grew by 30% or so uh, in 2021. And so we know that, you know, more donors, more and more donors were giving on their mobile devices. So that's another area. So I think it's going to be subtle changes like that in how donors are giving, how nonprofits are communicating and doing their work um, that we will that we will be a building on from what we've seen and adjusted to in our own day-to-day -day kind of fundraising and nonprofit leadership now. I think that's where we're going to start to see those little incremental changes over the next five years. Yeah, I think the, the pandemic, you know, I think it taught it, it definitely, let's just say, you know, it accelerated the virtual fundraising mm -hmm. event, right? But I think, you know, you, you you have to take one of the things that you're talking about, the future of fundraising, 
And I think it's better to start off with it small and implement it. Mm -hmm. So take one of those things that you just mentioned. Don't wait for a pandemic. Mm -hmm. Start playing with it now, right? Like, I agree with you. Like I did an interview a long time ago. Actually, I pulled it up just to make sure I remembered the name. It's called Bongiorno. Mm -hmm. And they're out of um, uh, Australia. Um, I did an interview with them on um, on, on June 17th of 2020. And um, they just made it really, really, really easy for people who work for you to upload their uh, videos from their phone. Mm -hmm. Um so and it made it very seamless so that they could help you tell the story of how you're helping people. And, you know, and I thought that that was really a, a smart idea because, you know, for nonprofits, the, the term storytelling has been going on for over a decade. Mm -hmm. right? right. You know, but, you know, would you rather tell your story through video or would you rather tell your st story through, you know, a long words, uh, you know, I, it, you know, the, a video has multiple dimensions to it. Um, so, you know, going back to my, my thing about, you know, my, my college too, I went, I went to Rutgers mm -hmm. and uh, they have, you know, 500,000 alumni and I, you know, and they have 50,000 students. Mm. So can't, you know, if people want to be touched like I do, you know, can't you make it a requirement? This is out, out, thinking outside the box. Can't you make it a requirement that every student has to call 10 donors, mm -hmm. 10 people, not 10 donors, 10 alumni. And just, you know, and that's part of, you know, if you don't do that, then your tuition goes up to $100. Mm -hmm. you, know? Mm -hmm. you know, here, you check this box. You're willing to make these 10 calls. I know it's, it's kind of crazy thinking that way, but the, the idea is what could you do now that will allow you to uh, bridge the gap between now and the future and you start small now mm -hmm. so that way when it does hit, you, you know, you're the mainstream, mm -hmm. you're, you're there. So I would say it's this is not um, super high tech necessarily, but it's reevaluating how are we stewarding our donors. Getting back to that earlier question that you posed, you know, do I make a difference? Do I matter um, to this institution? Every nonprofit should be looking at their stewardship plans, and if they don't have one, they they should be thinking about yeah. what are those touch points over the next year that we can implement that are that fall within our capacity to do this well. And, and multi-channel. So video, absolutely. And in fact, um, I don't know the statistics off the top of my head, but we know that videos, uh, emails with videos have much higher open rates and much higher click-through rates. So because it's just more interesting. Who wants to read yet another long email? Um, now, that said, I think there are some studies that show that long emails actually prove, you know, do work. But if your inbox is like my inbox, it's most of the time I'm just doing sort of tactical control delete of lots of emails because I just don't have the bandwidth to read them all. So, um, I so I think that there's you know really looking at what are the simplest ways that we can show gratitude and show our donors that they matter to us. It might be you know those phone calls, um, and we we know in the early days of the pandemic uh, there were some. There were a couple of stories I heard um, of, of organizations that were picking up the phone and calling their donors, especially their older donors who didn't have access to all the video yeah. things that we could very quickly adapt to. So that was so important to them. Um, I had a, I have a colleague who has um, an agency in the in the in Europe, and all of their sort of um, like their their. Uh, they're face-to-face, -face, they call them face-to-face -face fundraisers. So the ones who'd be standing on the streets with the clipboard trying to get new donors to sign up for an organization, obviously during the early days of the pandemic, they couldn't, um, they couldn't do that. So they brought them in, in as, you know, with, within the right protocols and they just had them stewarding the donors for these organizations. And the call times were, were out, were out, were wild. They were, you know, on average, they were like 15 minute phone calls, which again, for the, they were like, these, this is a lot of call, you know, time per call, but those donors were so happy to get a phone call from somebody who was not, you know, in isolation with them, somebody else that they yeah. could talk to. So I think 
not underselling the value of phone calls, of videos, of those personal touch points, those little notes. Um, again, not to every donor, depending on your bandwidth, but how can you segment in a way that will get, you know, be meaningful? Because those those donors that feel stewarded and feel valued will stick around. And I think that's where we saw um, we saw, you know, some long lapse donors becoming reactivated in uh, during the pandemic, the early days, because those important those were still important causes to them. They maybe had personal changes or maybe whatever other reasons they stopped giving, they came back. So we've got to hold on to those donors as much as we can and putting in place strong stewardship will carry them through whatever else comes our way. So, you know, that's where then you can weave in the the ways of doing that stewardship. So the using tech, using videos, um, using uh, virtual virtual events, touch, yeah, yeah, virtual events or whatever, uh, you, good old fashioned phone, um, all of those things. So I th- that's that's where I hope that nonprofits will start to spend the time now, either revising or writing a good stewardship plan, multi-channel, regular, periodic, you know, every quarter or every month, some different touch point, uh, because it it just supports then those opportunities when they do go back and ask for money. Because without that sense of, you know, did my did you get my gift? Did my gift make a difference? Um, when they're asked again, it will feel like they're just being solicited all the time. Um, and that's the worst feeling that anyone could uh, could have as a donor. And that's a lot of times, you know, why donors stop giving. Well, you know, I think it's, I, you know, it's, it's always great to work your way back from the end result and the end result of the, of the KPI, the key performance indicator that 60% of the donors uh, are, I guess, what are they leaving? Yeah. That is a crazy statistic. Right. And, and so you have to look at how many of your organization, how many people in your organizations are leaving and start there and say, we have to attack this. For sure. We have to go, you know, we have to go for that 60% if that's what it is for your organization. And we, you know, this, we got to get it down to 40% buddy in, in 12 months. And then we got to get it down lower because if you lower that, um, you, you're doing something right. For sure. And that's a, that's the average number. And so the you know kind of backing that out one step further, every organization needs to know what their own metrics are. So how many donors are they keeping? How so? How many are they losing? How many of those first time donors are they keeping or not? Um, we often, as nonprofit leaders, will get focused on how much are we raising towards our goal, our budget goal. But the but the behind the scenes numbers are equally as important, you know, because if it's just churn, if they're hitting their goals every year, but they've got very low retention and it's just churn, that's a an enormous waste of time for very already overstretched staff. Um, and so. You you will, you know, if you think about like acquisition costs, the cost to acquire a new donor is far more expensive. Same within the for-profit, right? The cost to acquire a new customer is far more expensive than it is to keep the customer you have. Same thing with donors. Um, so I think there is, you know, getting a handle on what those metrics are, putting, making sure you've got the right stewardship plan in place, and then you know, figure out, you know, how are your donors giving? How can we adjust and ensure that we're keeping ahead of or are ready to respond to the changing ways that donors are going to give, whether it's on Facebook, whether it's through their DAFs, whether through crypto and so forth. Um, I think those are those are other, you know, those are the things to be paying attention to. I will say one final thing I that really um, I hope we take away from all of this is there's there was, you know, there were always webinars um, pre-COVID and lots of great um, vendors and companies uh, and organizations were doing webinars for, for professional development. And with the pandemic, sort of everything became, there. everything was available, was accessible, whether it was free or low or relatively low cost. And I hope that for those nonprofits that are not able to carve out professional development money for their fundraising staff, that they will allow them that time, that they will somehow figure out a way to give them that time so that they can attend professional development, because that's the only other way that fundraisers will continue to sharpen, you know, sharpen their saw, so to speak, you know, continue to hone their skills and learn from others, understand what the trends are coming. That, you know, it, it, those webinars, frankly, that's definitely going to be here to stay. 
There's such a plethora of really great training opportunities virtually and uh, that they that that fundraisers anywhere can can take advantage of. It used to be, well, we don't have the money to attend that, you know, that conference because I don't have the travel. I don't have the, you know, the, the registration. I don't have the budget to do that or we can only send one staff person. Well, now there's you have plenty of opportunities. And so I hope that's the other piece that will that will. Um, you know, that nonprofits will take advantage of as we continue to move out of this. Well, you listen, the, I heard a statistic about a year ago that it shocked me. Uh, the nonprofit industry is the third biggest industry in the United States. Yeah. And so there's so many resources now that are coming down because there's a lot of money to, in, in that sector. And so there's more and more innovative ideas coming down. There's more and more resources Prices are coming down to train people or, you know, new avenues down because of virtual. So I agree with you. Uh, really good conversation. Uh, you know, it's unfortunately all the time we have for today. And But I'd like to thank so very much Barbara O'Reilly from Windmill Hill Consulting for coming on to today's podcast. If you like today's podcast, please feel free to share it with a friend. And also subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. If you like today's podcast or any of the other podcasts that we've done, please give us a review on your podcasting app to help us get the word out. Those uh, reviews, and please, I hope they're five stars, which so far they have been. Uh, that tells the search engines uh, for the podcasting up to rank us higher. And so it spreads the word uh, about the nonprofit MBA podcast, which I'm very proud of. I think this is like our 81st episode. That's great. Uh, and of course, if you're looking for a line of credit for your nonprofit, you can call us at 862-207-4118 or visit our website at nonprofitmbapodcast.com. Barbara, if anybody wants to get in touch with you, how would they go about doing that? They can visit my website, whillconsulting.com, and they can find me on social. I'm on Twitter and on LinkedIn, uh, and my Twitter handle is at B-O-R-I-L-E-W-H-C. And that's O-R-E-I-L-L-Y. You got it. Just so that, yep. Uh, Barb, thanks for coming on today. Stephen, it was really a pleasure. Thank you. So I want to thank all of you. You guys know I always end my episode this way, and I think I will do it till till I stop doing the uh, the nonprofit MB podcast. But I want to thank you for all the hard work you guys are doing. Uh, many of you do not know this. I am a Buddhist, and I believe as a Buddhist that we all, by our own behavior, have to help the world be a better place. But you guys, the nonprofits, are out there. And you are multiplying your behavior because you are just doing so much to help to make the world a better place. I thank you for, for that. Keep going. We've got a long ways to go. Of course, it's a terrible time right now with the Ukraine and the Russia situation. And uh, it's just hard to believe that we can't get rid of war. It's just a terrible thing. So I am uh, meditating and praying, and I hope you are too, that that conflict ends very, very quickly. So thank you for the work that you're doing. Barbara and I are going to try our best to make the world a better place as well. So everybody have a fantastic day. Get outside. Springs are right around the corner. You deserve it. You deserve to get out there and, and make yourself a better person and just take a break and have a good day, everybody. See you.